Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by the owl man himself, Mike Clellan. Mike, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you so much. So we have this connection, and and it's a, it's a, a small town in upstate New York, in northern New York, really, because, uh, you know, upstate kind of ends like at, at around Albany, you know, if you really think about it. But in northern New York called... Saranac Lake. So I grew up, uh, I lived the first about 25, 26 years of my life in Saranac Lake. So I've always been curious because you lived there for about six years. What mm-hmm. is it that that brought you to Saranac Lake? There was a beautiful woman that brought me to Saranac Lake. So I ended up there. I was in a relationship for six years with a wonderful person. I'm still quite close with her, Andrea, and um, she shows up in the books and, um, so I met her at a UFO conference and, and, uh, and one thing led to another and I was living in her home. So we lived at a beautiful inn. It's no longer an inn. I don't really want to use the name of the inn, but it, uh, mm. uh it's not running as an inn anymore, but uh, we ran what would amount to a bed and breakfast or an Airbnb for six years. And it was in this beautiful, wonderful farmhouse the big fireplace and a big, huge dining room was like this magical chapter of my life to live right there. And it's kind of tucked away. Well, you know how it is there. This is like homes that can just kind of be tucked away and you stand in them. It feels like you're in the woods when you're in the driveway there. So yeah, we ran an inn and it was a really fun social way to, to spend those years with, um, you know, meeting folks and folks would come in. So yeah, that's how I, and I'll, so, and uh, there were a lot of owls around that, uh, around that place, around that in there. So, which is a place with a lot of owls. So I don't, I don't want to read too much into it, but wow, did we have some owl activity out the door? So. It, like, I think, I think what's interesting there is like, it, there are a lot of owls in the Adirondacks. It's like, you can, you could generally, you know, if you're in the, if you're in the woods for a while, you, you can generally find one. I've never seen an owl in the Adirondacks. Really? Yes. Oh my God. I saw my, I saw them so much. We saw them all the time. So my partner, Andrea had owl experiences and that's how we met. She had an owl set of owl experiences. And, and, and so we had them around the house all the time and we would look for them. We were all totally like looking for them. And, and, uh, but yeah, so we saw them all the time. And, yeah, uh, like, and that's not uncommon if you're looking for them. So the neighbors saw them too and stuff like that. So it wasn't like we mm-hmm. were alone in this, but, um, and yes, it was certainly a place with a lot of owls around, but wow, was it out of hand at one time. So can I tell a little story just about, so yeah, this is no. what I could not tell at the time because I was like, so the landlords actually owned the building and we were in essence renting and we got our rent free essentially by taking care, which was pretty easy you know, to, to deal with these few rooms that we rented out. So, in this, so there was one day when uh, Andrea was out at a, she was doing sound healing. So she was doing sound baths. So she was, you know, playing singing gongs and, and singing bowls and chimes and things like that for a, an event. And, um, I was, I met the only people who were staying at the inn 
and it was this these two women and there was this was there was an owl sculpture it was kind of a little funny modern sculpture and it was on the back porch and that was there before i arrived so there was an owl sculpture on the back porch and one of the, the two ladies came up and they were good friends and one woman said um like oh look haha like there's an owl thing and and the other one went, Ooh, and my, the one woman looked to me and said, my friend hates owls. So she was kind of, and I was, she's scared of owls. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, it's like, like, they, like, so they, we, it's like a social scene. So we're standing on the back porch here and we talk and we talk and I kind of say, well, you know, just so you know, like I'm, I wrote some books about owls and like, you did? What about, well, the mythology of owls. And we just got kind of into it and it was kind of a gray day. So there wasn't really anything to, you know, they didn't need to be anywhere or anything like that. It was late in the afternoon and, and, um, and the one woman was just like, you could tell she was scared. And, um, and I told some stories and I probably shouldn't have because they're like, I mean, the stories that I tell can be pretty spooky. Yeah. And I will tell you, I lived in, I lived in that house for six years that night stood alone. Cause we heard, we would hear owls out the windows, you know, it was pretty normal. And then there's a certain time in the springtime where the barred owls right around this time of year where the barred owls will kind of be staking out their territory and they make a lot of noise in the, in the forest in the night and they're loud, like a crazy loud. Like it sounds like chimpanzees in a Tarzan movie or something. So yeah. that night was out of control. The, the owls were so many owls around the house. They were so loud. And I got up the next morning and I could hear the women in the hall talking because it's like a shared, like, hallway there yeah. and i could hear him talking yeah. and they were basically saying like this place gives me the creep so bad we got to get out of here and the other woman was kind of like oh you and but it was like she had every right to say that because it was like it was nuts that night how many how loud the owls were so that doesn't have anything to do with anything paranormal maybe it's a little synchronistic or maybe it's a little playful in the universe's part but um and there's no ufos in that story but that was certainly a funny account of of living in saranac lake yeah, um, it's Saranac Lake's an interesting town because like it's very it, it's it's a beautiful place to live. Um, it's very. Um, there's there's a rustic nature to Saranac Lake. Oh, there's yeah. also the, this like dark underbelly when you think about it uh, being this place where people sought refuge for tuberculosis and a lot of people just like died in this area. People so came like, to people. So there was a store, the train tracks have since been removed, not removed, yes. but there's no trains running anymore. Right. I think there was one summer, there was like this kind of touristy train thing that would, it was like an old time train. And we rode it one time and it went from Saranac Lake to Lake Placid. Yeah. And it was so slow. It was so slow, tick, 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 tick. It would kind of go and then tick, 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 come back. And it was just, they couldn't run the train fast on these old tracks. And they've since stopped using. So the train station was in, still in sort of use. It was kind of a summer tourist attraction, really. But, um, and uh, this, they were like, I can't remember the number. I'm making this up, but this is pretty close. There were 17 trains a day that came in and out of Saranac Lake. And one of them was just for the, the cadavers. Yes. Like yep. They would have to ship all the bodies out. And and I remember being at the train station and they had a kind of local guy there who was doing the history stuff. Uh, it was this more than one tuberculosis sanitarium or yeah. I guess a sanitarium in the old time version of that. Yeah. So people would come for treatment. And um, oh, and the, oh, we had uh, 
we had a what's called a cure couch. Do you know or cure bed? Do you know what those were? Yep. Yeah. Everyone and we had one on our our porch. It was the creepiest thing ever. It was kind of like this thing where like, oh, you, you can sit on the cure couch, and I was like, oh, this thing looked like something <laughs> from a monster movie or from some like, you know, steampunk. Yeah, that was like oh, I covered it up and tried to. So anyway, um, but the guy at the train station had these huge doors at the train station. Like you know, you'd like roll them. They were like the doors of like an you know a. a uh, like where you'd store your airplane or something like that. And, and I say, why are the doors so big? And he kind of looked right and left to make sure no, no one else was listening. He said, those are for the coffins. Yeah. We had to chip the coffins in and out. So, so yeah, it had a creepy, and there was a story. There was a, the, this is a apocryphal. I might be getting this wrong, but the mayor of Saranac Lake organized a, a group ritual Yes. We had people like Catholic priests and kind of pagany types and kind of psychic types. And they did, they walked through town and did a mass clearing of ghosts. Yes. Do you remember the story? Am I getting this yes. right? Yes. Yes. So um, I, th- I forget what channel did this documentary. I think it might've been like Animal Planet because they were doing paranormal mm-hmm. documentaries at the time, but it was largely centered around a an old apartment building that was owned by a guy named Mike Todd. And it, you know, it was reported to have been uh, haunted, like crazy haunted. Interestingly enough, uh, because I started with paranormal investigations, he actually asked me and a guy that I did it with to go up and investigate that property because my friend used to live on it, used to live on the top floor. And he talked about how you could hear what sounded like children playing and stuff. But uh, yeah, this was back in, 2008 2009 because i remember seeing something about it in the uh adirondack daily enterprise and Mm -hmm. uh at the um the band shell right there near uh right on lake flower i remember you know this ceremony uh a bunch of people got together and and did that yeah so okay and and so there's like stories of uh of um like dogs wouldn't go down certain streets when people would try to walk their dogs. And so I've talked to a lot of people who had like kind of ghost sightings. So for the listeners, the town, like there's a couple streets there. You could go down. There's some beautiful old streets by the, by the Trudeau Institute, which yes. was um, just bought out from my understanding by someone else who wants to turn it into some sort of convention type center. But mm-hmm. um, the, uh, and all these homes, all the old homes in the town have these great big porches because that was the treatment for a while for, for tuberculosis. Um, it wasn't a cure, but they found that people did very well by breathing cold air. So people would sit outside in these ugly, creepy kind of bed things, with that, like kind of hospital bed looking things. That, and then they would just basically put a bunch of blankets on and then breathe cold air. And they found that it did help. It minimized the symptoms, but didn't cure it, but it minimized the symptoms. So all these homes had all these great big um, porches. And oftentimes we can, we can move on if you want from this, but oftentimes people, it's my understanding people from, from like New York and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, these kind of urban, you know, this is 150 years ago, basically like uh, this, Mm -hmm. you know, urban you know, there was terrible issues of squalor and, and rampant illness in, in crowded cities at that chapter of history. And what happened, these people would come up for, to get, to get cured. And they were, um, they were 
fed like, you know, part of it was diet. So they were fed really well compared to what they were getting back down in, in the urban cities. And a and raw milk was actually part of it too. There were a lot of dairies there. And so these that would be Dr. Trudeau. Yep. Um would was treating people with diet, raw milk, and then this cold air therapy. And um, it's people did surprisingly well. Well, it didn't cure it, obviously, once antibiotics came along right after World War II. Um, tuberculosis essentially went to zero, and not quite, but it took a few years. But it so people ended up living in the town. So there's people who are descendant of, of you know, the people who left the slums of New York City, came up to Saranac Lake, and then ended up living there after the cure. So, yeah. Um, and I think uh, one of the most famous uh, people to come seeking that refuge was Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah, which, the Stevenson Cottage, yeah. Yes, so. uh, the, which is now a museum. But uh, yeah, um, I always have fond memories of Saranac Lake. It's the the place where, like, I've had a lot of strange experiences in my life, but, and they don't fit into one category. They're all very mm-hmm. different, and a lot of them happened in Saranac Lake. I had my first UFO sighting in Saranac Lake uh, when I was six or seven years old uh i had an encounter with what i call a gnome in my bedroom oh wow yeah um so uh i I was like six or seven at the time and it was christmas eve and i think this was around like 10 30 at night and i got up i i'd gone to bed like two hours earlier and uh just to go use the bathroom and I remember my parents telling me that it wasn't time to open a presents, but I just had to go to the bathroom. And uh uh we lived on um Circle Street at the time, which is um uh if I had to place it, um it's actually not far from um the uh the uh, old, uh, I mean, they kept changing names from Tops to Grand Union, but uh, the oh, sure, grocery, sure, yeah. but it's not far it's from the grocery store in town. Yeah. Tops. Yeah. 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 So um, I was uh, going in like uh, uh, to the bathroom and like uh, to get to up to our apartment, you know, you had typical like landing and stairs that went down and, and uh, curved to the right. Mm-hmm. So our our door was old and like my dad was a judge in town for like 25 years and uh it was it was always interesting because our front door never locked so we lived in an apartment where <laughs> the doors didn't lock so really if somebody wanted to get to you they could uh but like the you know old door with like a uh it's a skeleton key that would have locked it but uh I remember looking down and like you could see the hallway light from underneath the door if it was open and I noticed that the you know the light coming from down there, and I noticed that it, that it was getting smaller. So somebody was closing the door, and I assumed it was my downstairs neighbor Betty because she always did that. So saw that, didn't really think anything of it. You know, went to the bathroom and then went back in bed. And um, about a minute or two after I got settled in bed, this little shape appears in my doorway. I couldn't fully see it it was like in silhouette because Mm -hmm. of the way the light was but if you looked at it when you looked at it it looked it had the shape of a lawn gnome Mm -hmm. and it walked into my bedroom and i don't remember anything after that wow okay 
but I it, there are a lot of like there's a lot of strangeness to Saranac Lake. I'll I'll just put it at that. But uh, yeah, like um, uh, it's always good to reminisce about my hometown. I don't know. I just I just like doing that uh, sometimes. And you, and you were kind of the perfect person to to do that with. But um, one one question. Uh, how long into your um, owl research had had you been in by the time that you got up here? So I started the owl research technically in 2006 after an event where I saw a bunch of owls. And it was a lot of that was myth- looking at mythology and such like that. But one of the things that happened when I started looking into the, I had a sighting where I saw three owls with one person, her name is Kristen, on one night while camping at the sunset. And then four days later, it is totally different part of the mountains on a separate camping trip. We went for one night again and we saw three owls again. So that seemed really unusual. These were really close. And I started looking up owls and and I, at the time of the sighting, I was well aware that owls were related to the UFO contact experience. This happened in 2006. And so seeing the owls, I was like, is this like some contact thing? And it was like, I had a voice in my head that kind of said, this has something to do with the UFOs. So I had, I had a close-up UFO sighting as a boy and I, I had a missing time event as a boy and as a young man. And when I was 30, I had a experience of seeing five, this would have been in Maine. I had an experience of five gray aliens out my bedroom window. And so I, and I, I dismissed all of that. I ignored it. I pushed it away. I didn't look at any, I just didn't, didn't, didn't. I mean, that thing with the aliens out the window, I just dismissed as a dream and it certainly could have been a dream, but I don't think so. It didn't feel like a dream. Um, and so the act of looking into the owls also meant looking into my UFO contact experiences. So two things were unraveling at once. I was getting all this. I was reaching out to people who were doing UFO research at the same time I was reaching out to people. Well, actually, when I was reaching out to people who were doing UFO research, one of the questions I would ask is, have you ever had any odd experiences with owls? And they would say, whoa, that, yes, all the time it shows up. The researchers would say, oh, it shows up all the time in the research. And then in the experiencers were saying, that's a weird question. I've never told anyone this story. And they would tell this really strange, often mystical often absurd story involving owls. Now, your question, how long was that? So that would have been 2006. And I moved to Saranac Lake in December of 2014. So that would have been eight years later. Yeah. So the, so it was right around Christmas time when I moved. And uh, so I was eight years into it. And then the little, that, that, that beautiful inn, that old farmhouse in the back had an old converted chicken coop. And it wasn't much. It had a single plug. Actually, it had two plugs. It had two plugs in the in the chicken coop. And that was just literally an extension cord that ran into the house and then was plugged into an outlet, yep. a long extension cord. And um, and then I used that as my writing studio. So I wrote so I wrote the book The Messengers and the follow-up book Stories from the Messengers in that little chicken coop. I couldn't it wasn't heated in the winter. So and then I had a room in the house because the the inn hardly had any business in the in the winter. It's definitely a summer tourist place and a little bit yeah. of winter traffic. But, and then, so we had one room that I was using in one of the guest rooms, the smallest guest room I turned into an office in the winter. And then what I called the chicken coop. I would, I was working in the chicken coop in the backyard. It was so idyllic. It was so 
magical to like walk out the back door and walk through this little trail in the woods and then turn a corner. And there's this funny old little hut, you know, this little teeny, you know, wasn't much bigger than a storage shed, but, um, but it was cute and it was obviously made, you know, 80 years ago. And then it was an old chicken coop that had been converted into just a little storage shack and I turned it into a studio. So it was great. It's just great. Yeah. Like I didn't realize that you had written the books while you were up here. Like that's, that's yep. really cool. Yeah. yeah. So I've always been curious because, uh, you know, one, one things that, uh, uh, just, um, in, in, Knowing and being friends with Todd Purse, who you've been on his podcast talking about, um, you know, all it was a great episode. I listened, re listened to it last week. Um, is how, um, this phenomenon kind of can shape your curiosity and how it can make you can, can in, inspire you to do, uh, different things. And, you know, for, for you, uh, it's, um, you know, the books are a part of it, but, um, how did it influence, um, your art? Because I know that, you know, you're, you're an illustrator and, um, I, I'm just curious how, how would you say the phenomenon influenced that? Well, the book writing turned the art to zero. Basically the art mm -hmm. went to zero. Like I drew nothing for like seven, eight years, nothing, zero, which I, my, brother and sister i had a, like we had a you know the whole family got together my brother sister and i and i kind of said yeah, like i said jim gene my brother i like brother and sister are like you know i haven't drawn anything for like seven years and they were like what that was a professional illustrator since i was out of high school and they they just couldn't fit it into their brain i'm like yeah so so basically it changed my creativity my creative output to to the book writing so my energies went you know illustration work went to zero and then um the writing went to a hundred percent so and that was and i treat the writing even though those are non-fiction books i try to make they're not dry the books they're very i tried to be creative i mean the process was creative like i was storytelling and i was being creative in that so so i had a creative outlet through writing so it was still so my creativity potentially went up in a different way. I learned an entirely new skill and forced myself to learn this writing skill that I had always been sort of sloppy at. And I had to, I had to grit my teeth and, and, and work hard to get those books. I, I wrote the books that I wanted to read. Basically, like mm -hmm. I want, I knew the kind of book I would want to read. And that was the kind of book I tried to create. So, and there was, that was, so my artwork yeah. So the, I had, a, I was still immersed in the creative process, even though it did not involve a pen. Yeah. And like, I mean, you, you've even, you know, dabbled into like, uh, like one of my favorite, uh, my favorite illustrations of yours are in Mac Tony's The Crypto Terrestrials, because those are just absolutely fantastic. You know, like, oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, seeing an alien in a convenience store trying to buy cigarettes is um, well, that's a real story yes and i spoke a, with a woman her name is karen the woman who yeah. who, who uh had that experience so her and i spoke yeah. about that and and i was basically like because mac was already gone when i did those illustrations mac had already died when i did those illustrations so mm -hmm. i i reached out to the woman karen and 
said, how is this? And she'd go, oh, well, and the glasses were a little bigger. And okay, so I drew the glasses a little, a little like this. And then finally there was a point when I sent her an illustration and she was like, oh, that's it. So that's the one you're seeing in the, in the book there. So that was, yes, that's an absurd image, mm-hmm. but it, it, um, by her account, I wasn't there. So I was basically playing like, uh, you know, the, the police sketch artist and trying to capture what her experience was. And, um, and that, um, so there was a, Mac Tonys was a big fan. Do you know who R. Crumb is? The illustrator R. Yes. Crumb? Yep. Yeah. So Mac was a big f- fan of R. Crumb. And, uh, and we had talked about doing the illustrations for the book. And I said, there's a, there's a version of the Monkey Wrench Gang by an author named Edward Abbey that, that he did a lot of stories about the desert. He wrote a book called Desert Solitaire, but for a book called The Monkey Wrench Gang, um, R. Crumb did an illustrated companion, well, like he basically did chapter illustrations for that book. And there, and, and when, and I talked about that with Mac Tonys as he was finishing up the crypto terrestrials. And for the f- people that do, don't know him, he was a young, I think he was 34 and he died in 2009. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he was living in um, Kansas city, Missouri. And he died uh, of an undiagnosed heart issue. And he was basically found in his room. And it's my understanding he had what amounted to a very close finished book on the on his desk where he had actually was going through it with a red pen. And and I talked to the editor of the book and said, yes, there was still some editing to do on the book, but it was essentially done. So that's and I was heartbroken when he and I him and me and Mac were I mean, we never met in person, but we did talk on the phone often. And, um, and he was, so 2009 would have been a time when I was really, really mixed up about these experiences. So him and I talked on the phone a lot. Um, and the, there's a story about that when I did the illustration. So like I had a three ring binder, the, the publisher sent me the document and I went, it's a short book. It's a great yes. book. And anyone who doesn't yes. have it, it's a short little book. Um, it's probably 78 pages or something like that. And it's a right. small little book and pretty quick read. You can read it one or two sittings. So I, um, I realized I was gonna have to read the book to do the illustrations and, and they, and I actually contacted the, the publisher and basically said, I'm doing these illustrations from this book. Like whether you like it or not, I'm doing it. Right. And the publisher right. said, well, I was trying to figure out and I'd reach out to you. Cause we had, he had had a discussion with with Mac and didn't know who the illustrator was. So, so I put the book in, a th- I got it printed up at the Xerox shop in the little town I was living in, in Idaho. And then I sat alone in my office or my, the, my main room there where my office was. And I sat on the couch and I had the three ring binder out and I had a, my reading glasses on and I had a cup of tea and the house was quiet and I opened to the first page and it said the crypto terrestrials by Mac Tonys. And at that moment, my stereo went clunk. And I looked over at my stereo and this is kind of in ancient history in a way, but it was one of those stereos with the CD players. So you'd pack the CDs and you'd get like a little cartridge and you put six CDs in the cartridge and you'd push this big cartridge in and it would shuffle these things. And it made this like 
it's totally physical clunking, clicking noise when things changed around, but it ejected that, that cartridge. Mm. It never happened before, never happened since. And I, this is, I forgive me if I'm going out too long, but no, um, no. Mac Tony's begins that book with a little essay about a cat and a laser pointer. I had written an essay about a cat and a piece of string. So Mac was ever this futurist, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about the advent of AI and which is all very topical now and, and virtual reality. And, and he was writing, it was like very early blogger as far as like the blogosphere or whatever that wants to be called that, that world has changed, but he was right there at the forefront of all that. And writing beautifully as like a 25 year old, you know, about these very, like very forcefully, like taking people to task in a way. So, and I was doing a form of lightweight backpacking that was very minimalist. And I was like, you know, I wouldn't use a store-bought stove. I would make a little camp stove out of a old soda can and stuff like that. So I was just on the opposite end of that where, so and then someone pointed out, a reader of my blog pointed out that the, the CD player is a, is a form of laser beam. Yes. And Mac wrote about the cat and the laser beam. And so that would just, it really struck me that, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm the guy, this, even though I'm talking on this nice computer and I've got a nice microphone, I've got, you know, multiple websites and all that. But uh, all that said, like, I'm, it was very interesting. So I wrote an essay about a cat and a string. Mac wrote an essay about cats and a laser pointer, and we both basically made the analogy that the UFO phenomena is like, for Mac's point of view, it is the laser pointer and the and the cat, right? The cat is looking at the little orange dot or the little red dot on the carpet, trying to pounce on it, trying to get it. He can never get it. It's always one step away. And that would be the analogy of the UFO experience. Right. So the cat is looking at the dot. The dot is nothing. The dot is a projection. The the source of that dot is someone over on the other side of the room. The cat's oblivious to that person. And the same thing with the string. Like I would pull the string on the floor and the cat would focus on the string and not focus on me. So that to me was like, I think that is a, a tidy analogy for the UFO contact, or let's say the UFO presence. We're looking at these metal ships. Like, what are yeah. those metal ships? But that's not the question. Like, what is the source of those metal ships would be a much better question. By all accounts, those ships play out like projections. I've talked to many people who have said things like, um, yeah, I saw like a, oftentimes they're not even ships. Like, I saw a big orange glowing orb of light. And then it shrunk down to the size of a, of a tennis ball. And then it grew giant, like a huge giant cigar. It changed shape and then poof, it disappeared. That's not a physical object in any way we understand it. And it's very common for people who to see UFOs to say that it morphs, it changes shape. It's very common for two people to see a UFO. One says it's like, look, you know, it was silver. The other one says it's black. You know, very, very odd things take place in this lore that defy a simple metal spacecraft. Yes. So something, I think it would suit the UFO researcher and let's say the general public to contemplate, I can't say whether it's true or not, but to contemplate that the, the 
the overall UFO phenomenon might be a projection rather than some sort of physicality. So I'm going, I mean, I went all around the block there. Um, so Mac and I basically wrote the same essay and we, uh, the last one of the last emails we had between Mac and I, cause Mac, I was like, Mac, when, when was that? When did you write that essay? Cause I, and I had to figure out when I wrote it. So I think I wrote it in this November of 2007. And I think he wrote his essay in September of 2007. And I did not, I'd never met him. I didn't know his website. I had never read his essay, but we essentially wrote essays so similar as to be eerie. And I, I remember I just got up in the, one morning, drank a cup of coffee and sat at the computer and wrote the, wrote the essay just to just sort of download it out of nowhere. I mean, it's, inspiration is a funny thing. So that's lots of things happen like that, but that's the way my essay got created. So Mac and I wrote the same essay and, and he, he and I had conversations, which I quote in the book, because some of those took place over email where we said like, wow, this is weird. I mean, these are really similar. So, so that was all tied into my friendship with Mac too. The crypto terrestrials. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a unique book because like, it's, you know, going off the idea that, may, hey, maybe there's this other race that that kind of maybe they were here before us. And well, they're parallel to us. Yes. And they're, they're somehow atrophied. They're somehow he's. And so also just to be fair, like people's people and it bugged him that mm -hmm. people treated that his that um, the crypto oops, excuse me, treated the crypto terrestrials book as if it was. Like his eye, like if he believed it, like it was basically, right. well, you're proposing this. And like, I don't see that. And he's like, and he, he was very clear all throughout the process that this was just a thought experiment. Let's see if this, mm -hmm. like I have this idea, let's speculate about it. Let's look through the data and see what matches. So he, he was not wedded to that idea, but yeah, the idea was that there was a race parallel to us somehow in our presence, whether physicality or partially physicality or or like overlapping with our physicality and such like that and so that was like the basically the story of like like if it's an alien race from another realm how on earth could it walk into a drugstore and, and why would of all things what why would it buy cigarettes right you know? and that that particular image actually inspired an episode of our strange skies we uh i had my buddy ap strange on and we did an episode about aliens trying to pass as humans and mm -hmm. like going into certain places like there's that infamous story uh uh after communion was published that whitley streber's publisher was in a bookstore and he saw yes. these two weird figures like over there like nitpicking the book and he walks over and he's like oh, well what's wrong with it and then he looks and it's like they look like grays wearing wigs and they're yeah. talking about like, Oh, how this is all wrong. And that's all wrong. And yeah, uh, that was, we, the, we that was the, I think that was the Coliseum bookstore on 57th street. Yes. Yes. In it, New York it city. Absolutely was. I think, absolutely I think I've got was. that right. Yeah. So, yep. Uh, but yeah, we found, we found a bunch of those, uh, kind of stories and they, they were always kind of interesting, but it, it was that image that inspired that episode. So, um, um, mm -hmm. One, one thing that um, oh here, let one more thing about Mac Tony. So I'm yeah yeah go, go ahead. Oh, so I'm working on a fiction book right now, and mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be out. What is today the third? So eleven days from now, knock wood, if all goes according, to, uh, the book will be published. Um, and it's a fiction book, 
And there's a character in it that is 100% based on Mac Tony's. It was, it's a guy who works at the coffee shop. Mac was a barista at Starbucks. This yep. is a little more kind of, this is not a chain store or anything like the little small town coffee shop. So, but the, the barista is, is totally Mac Tony's. And I call him Tony in the book. So I'm not going to hide that as far as a lot of things <laughs> kind of, I snuck into the story, but I'm not going to try to pretend that. Uh, so that one, I'm putting that right out there. So anyone who reads the book will know how to picture him and the inspiration for him. So. Love that. Love that. Um, so, um, you know, we talked, you talked about how like that image uh, is absurd in, in and of itself, you know, uh, the, an alien or, you know, like whatever you want to call them, walking into a store, buying, attempting to buy a pack of cigarettes. Like when it comes to the absurdity in UFO and, and humanoid uh, alien encounters, what do you think the purpose of that is? Because I've always one thing that I've always seen the absurdity is because there there this element of believability that makes the story completely unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it is kind of this element of truth in what somebody's saying because if you're you're talking about an encounter with with something like this most people are going to think it follows a certain line of logic and you throw this in the in the mix um and your story is suddenly not believable it's 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 practically a catch-22 when it comes to um these kind of encounters but um one thing that i've always kind of um thought is that the absurdity is what helps a person remember these encounters, because when you talk about, uh, in many cases, like abduction accounts, and there's a very. And, and as someone who has never been, you know, in that kind of situation before, there's kind of that doctor's office feel to it. And it always seems like the more relatable a, an encounter is to someone's human experience the less it seems to be memorable. So mm -hmm. I, I just, uh, I'm just curious what, uh, about your thoughts about the absurdity of like UFO cases and, and what function you think they serve and whether, you know, because uh, it, uh, it just, it, they seem like they're by design, at least to me, to be that way. It certainly seems to be. So if, if it's an alien, so alien in the dictionary, if you look it up, one of the definitions is, I'm going to try and do this from memory because I, I use this one a lot, something so unusual as to be unknowable, mm -hmm. right? So it's not just that it's odd, but it's that it's unknowable. Like it's, it's outside the boundaries. Like, you know, like, oh, this music, I can't listen to this music. It's alien to me, right? So that means that like, you can't even tap into the music. It's like, it doesn't even sound like music to you, you know? So, um, so that would be the, if the alien visitation is truly from some place you know right if someone from like even a very exotic place you know someone from from new guinea shows up in the suburbs of detroit you know they're by all accounts they're gonna there's got a lot of things in common but there'll be social differences and things like that sometimes those social differences will seem outrageous like little habits and things like that so if this truly is something from not 
you know, from beyond earth, or let's say from beyond our dimension or beyond our noble realm, it should be unknowable because they're, they're coming from that, that, that far off place. Now, if it's by design, so do you know what a Zen Cohen is? No. So a Zen Cohen, if you were, if you were in a monastery in Japan, let's say, and you were study, studying Zen Buddhism, they, the, the, um, teacher, the guru, the, the teacher would have uh, an assignment and they give you as a koan to meditate on. And a koan is an unanswerable question. Like, for instance, what is the sound of one hand clapping? That's a Zen koan. It, it's absurd. It doesn't mean anything. So you, are, you sit for an hour meditating on what is the sound of one hand clapping. There is no sound of one hand clapping. But so you're forced, you're, you force yourself to go into that unknowable place and then they um they uh the implication is that the 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 student or the apprentice or the initiate is then forced to basically have some part of his psyche crack and allow something in right so if you asked him a very prudent question you know what is one plus one the, the, there would be no need to meditate, right? They, they would, so you ask something that's unanswerable and then you, that it allows your mind to crack. And that's someone who's had UFO contact. Any thoughtful person who's a UFO contact goes through a crisis. Anyone who has had going through a shamanic initiation will go through some sort of crisis. Anyone who has a profound spiritual experience We'll go through some sort of crisis. So in a way, it's like a mini crisis, having it be so absurd. That's always something that um, is, is always kind of like stuck in my head, because for me, I, I have a tough time totally believing that this force is unknowable, but it knows us to a certain extent. And it appears to certain people uh, because, well, well, you know, you listen to a lot of people who say um, they've had these kind of experiences and they say, I don't, I, I, there's nothing special about me. At the same time, there's something that feels very tailored to them that mm -hmm. these, it, 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 you know, show up to the point where, um, in part, I think these encounters are signposts for people in their life and they put them on a path to wherever they're going. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and, and, you know, I can't, I can't totally like, for some reason I can't totally put it into words because, and, and the easiest way for me to relate that is, um, the podcast. So, um, like I said, I've had a lot of strange experiences in my life. I haven't since I started this podcast. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, so um, uh, since I moved to Tupper Lake, I've had I had from I, I moved here in 2009, and from 2009 to about 2018, I had repeated UFO sightings. I had um, an encounter with um. How do I describe it? Most conventional people would say a lizard person, mm -hmm. like a bipedal. Um, it was about 
maybe about five feet tall, Mm -hmm. had a tail and everything. I saw this while I was walking to work one morning. I've had weird ghostly experiences. Um, I, I had my UFO experience that you've read about in Ryan Sprague's book. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, for some reason I kept having these encounters, you know, like, don't know why me, but, um, I started the podcast at the tail end of 2017 and it was maybe a month or two after that I had interviewed Brad Abrahams, uh, the director of love and saucers. Sure. Yep. And, um, it was weird because I was, I remember editing the episode in my living room and it felt the entire time I felt like I was being watched uh, and I had no clue what that was about. Even my dog was like, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to be near you right now. So she, you know, uh, decided to go lay in her bed, but uh, I just remember being watched. And then the next morning getting up, going to work and I see this UFO as I'm walking to um, as I'm walking to work and it's um, it kind of follows me for a little bit. And then as I'm like halfway down the street that I had this, you know, lizard person encounter, it just takes off and I haven't had an experience since then. So. Um, and how long ago was that? 2018 so it was like oh, so about five okay. years ago yeah but um oh that movie's um, been out that long yeah wow. yeah it given that context uh and people who have repeat encounters why do you think people have re- repeat encounters what is it that you think either you know makes them prone to this or makes this these type of um phenomenon keep coming back well here let me ask a question for you to you what how would you rate your psychic skills have you had psychic experiences premonitions that come true that type of thing esp i I, uh i guess you would call it like empathic kind of Mm -hmm. stuff so like uh like i'm not i'm not like some i don't have very prominent abilities um they're not very strong um okay there but like um for instance uh if um if i make a connection with somebody and like there's uh you know it's you know somebody i um talk to on a regular basis like how how often it manifests is um i'll text them right before they're about to text me happens all the time um they'll say oh i was just about to text you oh i was just thinking of you so that's about the extent for me. Okay. Um, so the reason I ask is because people who have had UFO contact experiences, and I would also say people who have had the near-death experience and people who have had, oh, like shamanic training and things like that. You know, there's a very funny line, like where one thing begins and the other ends. So it is people who have multiple UFO contact experiences in the early days of the research the researchers would basically get a person who had a UFO contact experience. So oh, then I had another one and they just take the 
paper and crumble it up and throw it away. Like that's absurd. Like it's yeah. totally random. How would you have two? Yeah, they uh, they called the, it the repeater problem. The yeah. repeater problem. Yeah. So they would they would just throw it away. Yeah, and then they would just dismiss it. Now, <clears throat> what shows up, which is very weird, people have multiple near death experiences. Oh. Right. So like it's very common. So people have near-death experience, you know, you go to the operating table and you die. So sometimes people with health issues, they go to the hospital or it's some totally different, you know, like one time they get hit by lightning and another time they like get, you know, die on the operating table for, for gallbladder surgery. It doesn't have anything to do with the lightning. So it is not uncommon for people to have multiple near-death experiences. And you know what else is weird? The, the Statistically, the people who have had both near-death experience and UFO contact experiences is absurdly high. Basically, if you get a bunch of people in a room that go to a UFO conference and say, okay, everyone who's in the room who's a UFO abductee, raise their hand. Okay, everyone who's who's in the room who's had a near-death experience, raise your hand. They're like, okay, who had their hands up both times? Wow. Let me tell you. Like, I don't have the statistics. There's a fellow named Ray Hernandez who's done statistical research exactly on this, but yeah. it defies the simple, right? So near-death experience should be random. It doesn't seem to be. UFO contact should be random. It doesn't seem to be. So the implication is why are people getting contacted or being followed or being tagged? You know, some people would say like, I, I'm tagged like a, like a animal, like a grizzly bear in Yellowstone, right? They go in the, the, the wildlife biologists go in with a helicopter and a gun that shoots tranquilizing darts and shoots the bear. I've talked to these these biologists they shoot so i lived right near yellowstone so, I, so they, they would shoot the bear and the bear is paralyzed but its eyes are open and it can see everything so they put a blindfold on the bear because it's less stressful for the bear and mm. then they do medical experiments they weigh it they like and then they just take the blindfold off and they get back in the helicopter and fly away and the 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 the, the drug wears off and the bear goes on its merry way now i mean that's a tidy analogy for for what happens, but I, that analogy f falls apart. I mean, does the bear go back to his little bear buddies and say like, like, oh, I'm psychic now. Right. Or does the bear start having synchronicities? Does the bear change his religion? Right. Does the bear totally move to a different place? Right. So this is very common for people who have UFO contact experiences. Like, whoosh, like basically like I was told to move to Denver and whoosh, they moved to Denver, you know? And, and so the implication is they are being so on a on a to take away any form of of like basically you're not in control of your life right so someone else is pulling the strings that's a that's an unsettling thought right. or they are being um like a teacher in a school would do things to get a student to learn a lesson right it would be terrible to say okay here you're going to have to learn a lesson i'll tell you what the lesson is and you just do it well, that's not a very good way to teach someone, right? So you'd want to usher them and figure out a way for them to solve the problem and come to their own conclusion. And, and maybe that's what's taking place, just a, just a gentle nudging over and over and over for these individuals. Why these individuals? I don't, you know, maybe. So, so, so I've been, so over the years on my website, I have a thing that says, I want to hear your owl stories. The website's been around in one form or another for 14 years. Yikes, that hurts to say. And and so for the last 14 years, I've been saying publicly, I want to hear your owl stories. Like it's become more and more public as the book got popular and I, you know, like advent of podcasting and YouTube videos. And I've spoken it at a few conferences, but most of my stuff is just done like this. Now, if um, people contacting me 
with their owl stories, right? So there's a huge wide spectrum of UFO stories. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in those. I mean, I'm the owl. Right. I'm interested in that little thin sliver of a bizarre owl experience along with UFO contact experience. So there's like, I don't have, I would love to get a statistician or a team of statisticians and crunch the numbers and go through my data. Like I got all these, I got all these reports logged and I don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know what to do with them. There's, there's patterns in there that I, I know anecdotally. I don't know them. Plus, so anyway, let's say I have a thousand reports, which is about what I have. Like a thousand, I have a thousand, what I would call a plus reports, like really good, interesting reports. A lot of people contact me. So oh, I saw an owl on the fence. It was so beautiful. I'm like, oh, that's, that's nice and all, but that doesn't count. So the people who say, you know, like, oh, I had an owl and it shot up like a laser beam into my third eye. And now I'm psychic. Like those are the ones I, right. I want to hear about. So, so of the people that's like, I'm picking kind of a, that was kind of a heavy handed example, but that's, that is a true example. So, uh, the, uh, so of the, of, I would argue, I don't think I'm far off that first, do you know what Reiki healing is? Reiki therapy yes. and Reiki healing? Yes. I would argue that 50% of the people who have owl and UFO experiences are also Reiki healers. Mm. I'll tell you what, 50% of the normal population is not, does not do Reiki healing. No, it's, I don't even think, I don't think there are a, a large hand. I don't think there's a large amount of people that actually do Reiki healing. I think it's a relatively small amount, but. Unless, right. Unless they've had both a UFO and owl experience, then I would, it, I, I don't have the exact data, but wow, it's around 50%. Five zero, 50%, half. You get two people in the room that have had UFO owl experiences, one of them is going to be a Reiki healer. Which, like that's yeah, weird to me. That is they're, very they're weird. using a non-traditional form of healing where they don't even touch the body. They just use energetic. They, they're basically just thinking things in their mind. The healers, they're not doing anything. They go through a set of protocols. It's just basically visualize this thing, visualize whatever it might be, white light or certain Japanese symbols. And then the person on the, on the table or even the person over the phone from far Mm -hmm. away is i would i'm really cautious to say healed but they but there's plenty of issues that people have had amazing experiences with reiki healing yeah so what does that mean right this so this is this is where this is where i'm fascinated like there's this this is right in there with that absurd stuff right so if i sat there with a professor of statistical analysis at harvard and said i want to crunch the numbers and here's what the data here's here's my hypothesis here's my data pool he wouldn't even he would just escort me out of the room and ask me never to come back you know it's so absurd so yes there are these absurd things that are woven into the into the 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 mystery yeah yeah no they they absolutely are and like you know when you read a story about these like two guys encountering a UFO outside of a rural town in Idaho. And one of them gets out of their craft and takes their car and a brief joyride into a wheat field. Doesn't sound like something aliens would do, but it's something that actually was reported. Uh, yeah. 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 In uh Riri, Idaho. Um, like, Oh, Riri. Yeah. 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 So I uh, lived in Idaho. Riri is how it's pronounced. Yeah. 
Is it? Okay. Yeah, right, so I've been right. pronouncing it wrong the whole time. Oh, it's but a like, funny, everyone knows it's right. It's a funny word. Yes. It's, I always yeah. think it sounds like something Scooby-Doo would say. So. Right. Yeah, it does. It really does. But it's like so Scooby-Doo is a paranormal investigator. That, that is that is very true. That is very true. But like to think that two Native American men had this encounter in 1967 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why yes. is it? So I, there's a, so this is a, the Ann Streber, wife of Whitley Streber. Yeah. Um, she said, I have a, I have a BS detector mm-hmm. and I know if someone's telling me the truth or not, if they tell me their, if their UFO story, because if it's not weird, I don't trust yes. it. Right. So if someone tells me a pragmatic story that goes from A to B to C, and it has like a logical progression, like a, like a children's storybook or, or like a, I'm I, I like, I'm, I'm skeptical. Yes. If someone Absolutely. wanted to make something up, they would make something up that's logical. The stuff that emerges is not logical. Yes, it's absurd. exactly. Uh, we just covered, uh, it's called the, um, the case of the night visitor, or um, it's also called the pretzel CE3 case. It's a case from Argentina uh, from 1968. And this uh, woman was... Uh, her father owned this hotel uh, called uh, Hotel La Cuesta, and um, it's still there today. You can go, you can go stay there if you want. But uh, she was in the process of locking up at about one in the morning. She goes through uh, the kitchen. She's uh, shutting off lights, and she sees a blue light coming through uh, the serving hatch. And she goes back through the kitchen, and she sees this human-looking figure that was floating, wasn't walking, uh, had light coming from the hands and the feet. And in one hand, it was holding a spherical object of some kind that had these kind of like nubs on it that were producing light. And she finds herself unable to move. She finds that her body has moved on its own. She's gripping this bar top that's nearby. and. This being is sending her a telepathic message saying, don't be afraid. And in the most ridiculous part of the story, the being lifts up its right arm and she starts to fall backwards very slowly. Doesn't end up hitting the floor, but uh, she comes back up. Being does it again. She falls on her right side and then comes back up. And then the being leaves. What is that? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, the the absurdity of that is just like, uh, because one of the theories was uh, that uh, one of the Argentinian investigators came up with is that her father, who had come home just after this encounter, had caught her with her fiance in the hotel. But if you were, and like made her come forward with the story to kind of make her look like a fool. But like, if you're going to come forward with a story like that, it would make a little more sense than that. Like that, the, there are hallmarks in that story that do not equate to someone making up a UFO encounter to save their butts, you know? Mm-hmm. So like it's, it's the absurdity that's always going to be there. But uh, wh- one question that um, I always think about and you know as someone who was briefly a part of MUFON and who has read through 
like the old UFO journals, because if you read through the old cases and the old UFO journals, it's very factual. There isn't a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, information about the witness other than, you know, their impression of what, what kind of person they thought they were. And uh, they give you the facts of the case and then it ends, which uh, in many ways, the way that these um, articles end is kind of fitting to the UFO, uh, you know, humanoid experience because those encounters just end. One thing um, that I want to ask ask you is uh, when, you know, investigators are, you know, trying to gather the facts and stuff like that, what questions do you think they should be asking that they don't? Well, I can tell you the questions I ask. So, yeah. so, so first, when you say the journals are looking through the journals, are you talking about like MUFON? Um, I've, uh, the old, uh, MUFON UFO journals, flying saucer review, uh, sure, okay. bulletins, all that stuff. Yeah. So, so, um, MUFON, I've got a copy of, I'm not a member of MUFON. Someone sent me a copy of it, of the checklist, right? It's a little thing you put in a clipboard, you print it out, you put it in a clipboard, you go to this person's house when they say, I saw a UFO and you go there. One of the questions on it is, I'm doing this from memory, but it's pretty close is, has, how has your, have you had increased psychic abilities mm. or telepathy or ESP? So the, 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 there, that is a dry, factual, scientific-based data collecting organization. They have that question right in there. And I think there's one other question where they say, do you, do your, has your religion changed? Because like, your spirituality changed. Mm. Right? That's right in there with... The, so the questions I ask, what was happening leading up to the event? What changed after? Mm-hmm. Do you have psychic abilities? Do you have healing abilities? I don't care. I don't care whether the thing, and this is often, and this is, I, I don't make any distinction at all between UFOs, synchronicities, and owl sightings. I ask the same question. Someone has a powerful, there's a difference between like, oh, we were driving down the road and there was an owl, like I saw flying off in the distance. Eh, okay, that's an owl, you know. But if someone says, oh, I had this owl, it was this mystical experience that showed up right at this moment. And like, that's what I want to know. What happened leading up to the event? What happened after the event? And so um, trying to think of some good examples. I mean, I've only got 10,000 stories, but they're all, some of them <laughs> take a long time to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, Saranac Lake, actually Clear Lake, the clear, clear Lake. Lake Clear, yeah. Lake Clear, Lake Clear, yeah, it's Lake Clear. So, so a woman lived on Lake Clear and she, this is just a friend of, a friend, this is a friend of Andrea's and, um, she had a powerful story. She was, her mother was old, getting aging, and her mother's TV broke. And the mother called up the daughter and basically said, you have to come over and fix the TV. And I can't remember the context of this exactly, but I remember the mother was very, very distraught just about life and just about, you know, her mom's condition. It was basically like mom was failing, health failing needed so she's driving and she's crying out crying tears rolling down her eyes she says there has to be more than this there has to be more than this like what is the meaning of all this like why are we here what does it mean like the big questions the philosophical question that plagued man since time of the caves yeah why are we here what does it mean 
There must be something more than this. She turns the driveway into their mom's driveway and there's a giant UFO, brightly colored psychedelic Christmas lights kind of twinkling all over it. And, and then, and after, so I would also say, I'll, I'll no, be careful what I said. I don't want to say, she has given me her permission to share the story, but there, she has a, uh, she hosts retreats, oftentimes metaphysical and spiritual retreats at, at the business she runs on Clear Lake. So, or Lake Clear. And, um, so the question, what was happening before your event, the event, the UFO sighting? Well, she was basically pleading, tears in her eyes, emotional. There's, show me the, something. I need, there's, I need a, I need proof that there's more to all this. Yeah. Minutes later, hovering UFO above her mom's house. And then she's hosting spiritual retreats. So I, I'm, that, that third part is, I'm not sure where that fits in the timeline. That would, that might've been years later, but you know, boom, boom, one, two of, of asking, pleading for help and then getting a, a sign of a UFO. That is common. You know, what is also really common is people say, people be walking down through the woods or they'll be driving alone at night or something. And so they'll have a thought, I'd like to see a UFO. And they turn a corner and there's a UFO. That, that is, I would love to get crunch numbers on that. I would say that's 20% of all UFO reports fall into that. I'm guessing that's probably a little, that's probably a little high, but a, a, that's very normal to hear that when, when I'm talking to a witness. Um, I have an interesting aside, um, uh, about asking for proof. Um, this was maybe two months after. So if, uh, uh, for the listeners, um, if you're listening to this, go pick up Ryan Sprague's new books, uh, story stories from somewhere in the skies. It has, uh, a story in there for me, which is the story like this podcast wouldn't exist without that story, without that experience. Like mm-hmm. this wouldn't be what it was. And I mean, it was two years after that experience that, you know, kind of led to it. But it was two months. Uh, I'm still doing the same job that I do that I was doing back then. And uh, for a portion of the morning, I'm by myself. I'm alone. And. I had just finished reading a, a book about alien abductions. I can't remember exactly, you know, which which one. And I don't I don't tell this story often because I think it makes me seem crazy. But, you know, that is what it is like, uh, you know, it's. but um, I remember I was just by myself. I had just finished this book and I said in my head. If you exist, please just show up, just appear. And out of the corner of my eye, I didn't see it straight on, but out of the corner of my eye, I see about a four foot tall figure out in the hallway. It's wearing black clothes, but it's got a distinct large head um, like you see with with grays had big, large eyes. And. I'm looking at it through the corner of my eye and proceeded to run out of the building. So you ran out of the building. Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah. Um, ask and you shall receive. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I was with a friend and we were lying at, 
uh, under the stars. This was in, in uh, southern Utah, so it was kind of a narrow canyon, and with a so it's basically you know we're on the sandy bottom of a narrow canyon, and and so there wasn't a huge canyon. It wasn't like Zion Canyon walls are a thousand feet, but there were probably a hundred feet on each side of, you know, tall canyon walls on each side of us. And we're in this beautiful spot and this, it's nighttime and the stars are out and we're, and so I do this thing and I, we had talked about it with my friend and I said, I do this thing where we, I say, um, hello universe, you know, I'm asking for your help. I'm open, receptive to whatever you want to show us. And basically thank you in advance and thank mm-hmm. you. As soon as I said thank you, an orange dot travels right across the field of view. So we don't have a wide open view of the sky. So it's this narrow view. So before like, before you're even like, wait a minute, it's gone. It was traveling sort of slow, but fast enough that it was, and people say, well, it could have been a satellite. And we're going, you know how many times I've slept out on it? You know how many satellites I've seen? This was like so different. Mm-hmm. This was big, bright orange. Well, it could have been the space station. Yeah, maybe, but Wow. Like that, that moment at that moment when I said, like, and it happened right when I said, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple, I have a bunch of stories like this. I actually have a bunch of stories exactly like this, where I have like, like, I just ask it in, in the moment. Oh, I was another time I was camping with a friend and this is in the Tetons and um, we're up in, on the Idaho Wyoming border and I said, oh, let's do this thing. I do this thing sometimes where I say like, oh, and I'm just about to start. Okay, I start, I get about halfway through it. And she goes, oh, what's that? And this big lumbering thing, like boom, 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 walks right by her. Like, it's kind of, it's not right next to us, but there was like a gap in the trees and it was a full moon and this thing, just big thing walks right by and like, well, those boom, 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 boom. And we went out there and it was funny because we had this talk of like, well, it's moonlight. It's hard to tell how big something it is. Either it's something really big far away or something kind of small close up. And, and it happened right when I was saying that little, that little, I will call it a prayer or let's say a mm-hmm. manifestation or just like a request to the universe prayer. I guess that's request to the universe prayer. Yeah. That's, that's fair. So, um, and the next morning we went over there and right where the, the line that this thing traveled were bear tracks, but there was a baby bear, which are actually the most dangerous. Cause if mom's around, so we had every yeah. reason to have our go thump, thump, thump. But, uh, but the tracks were like super adorable. Like, so what it was, was a baby bear, a cub close. It was close to where we were lying. Yeah. Probably, you know, 40 feet, maybe the last oh 30 feet. Yeah, it's really close. So, but it's, you know, but it just walked by. There was nothing. It just, it was just like, so that was, um, and I've got lots and lots. Of, so there's no UFOs in that story, but it was basically like, like how, 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 how tough do you think you are, right? A baby bear. Boom. both of us were like freaking oh my god like it boom 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 boom. our hearts are pounding because it could have been something big i thought it was if it was a moose it would have been a moose far away moose yeah. are around and but they're like yeah i'm not too worried about a moose but which there are plenty of moose in that part of the world but but and a moose are very big but um it was tiny it would so with the little paw prints were you know the thing would have been the size of a puppy given the size of the prints so but anyway, so so you this is like, oh yeah, how tough do you think you are? Yeah. yeah like so. Oh, here's one little in the book that you're in, in Ryan Sprague's book. Do you know what the chapter right before is? No, I haven't had a chance to dive in yet. Okay. I so what I did is I got the book. Ryan's a friend of mine. He got yeah. a book. I ordered it right on Kindle right away. And I got the book. The very first thing I do is look up any book I get. I'm I've gotten I look up owls. Mm-hmm. 
and there's a great, great owl account. And I read it, read it, and it's like, wow, this is like textbook. It's like a guy said, I want to like have a spiritual experience. I'm going to meditate on spiritual, powerful spiritual experience. And then I, boom, and owl after owl after owl. He says, one owl flies by, then five owl flies by, and then some owl does a loop-de-loop, and then, then he sees UFO, flying saucer. I think I've got this right. I'm, I just, this was, and then I turn the page and it's your account. Weird. And I reached out to you and I said, Hey, you're the guy from Tupper Lake. And did we, I think we exchanged an email or something. And yeah, so that would have been a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago. Max. Yeah. 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 That's, that sounds right. And there's another connection right there. That's interesting. So that's a loose one, but that's still like, yeah. these things are, this is difficult to, to, it's tough to separate the, the, the subtle clues from the overt clues. A fellow contacts me. This is, a, this is, but this is, the story is really powerful. So the fellow contacts me, his name is Mike C also, and he's driving in um, Massachusetts and he's driving home from work. It's full daylight, sun's out and he gets, crosses a bridge. And then just as he crosses a bridge in, in a big town in Massachusetts, uh, an owl whoosh, flies right up towards his window and veers off, scares the crap out of him. And then he turns a corner and then he's driving along the road and then he looks over to his, to his left and there's a flying saucer, a giant like football stadium or football field sized flying saucer hovering above. It's actually hovering above like a water treatment plant, kind of like an ugly industrial thing. And he's in traffic. Nobody seems to notice it. And this thing floats up. So he's stuck in traffic and it floats up into the clouds and disappears. And then he says, oh, by the way, I was, I was, and this is going back and forth through text. I'd met him, but we're, this is, we're texting this. So I have his exact dialogue. And, and he says, oh, by the way, um, when I saw the owl in UFO, he's talking to me, he said, I was listening to your talk, meaning me, on owls and UFOs. I was listening to it on my MP3 player. And I was like, what? You were like listening to me? Owl? You were like, you saw an owl and a UFO and you were listening to me all at the same time? And I said, yep. So that that what thing was was in text. The text messages are dated or timestamped. It was at 1111. Okay, yeah. And oh, actually, excuse me. It was at 1234. And then Ooh, he okay. got back to me the next day and he replied to me and said, yes, his text was at 11.11 when he got back to me. And then later he was at the exact same spot stuck in traffic. And he, and he took a picture of someone with a little owl in their rear view, or in the, like right at the same spot on the same road. And there was an owl toy in the back of their windshield. And he took a picture of it in the picture of timestamp 333. And so I point this out and people hate that. Oh, they hate that. But I feel like those little clues are, are important. I also say, this is my little catchphrase. I say, don't start a new religion over these little things, right. but pay attention to them. Right. Yeah. Because they, they do mean something. It's just, you know. But boy, does it make some people angry. Like, like they're like, you can't say that. That's like, that's not part of the data pool. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not beholden to you. I'm like, you know, so I, I've, I've definitely heard those people. I, I, uh, I used to listen to Ono, Ross and Carrie back in the day. And I know oh, uh, they're the ones, they're the ones yes. they, they give me a hard time. It's exactly those two. Yes. More, yeah. more, um, Ross than Carrie. So. Right. Yeah. But, uh, I remember 
listening to that episode because I think they went to a convention to interview you, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, they didn't want to interview me, but they just saw me at the convention. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, and, and that, but other people have said that to me too. But that's, they, that was exactly who I was thinking of when, when you told me the story. Yeah. So, and he, he kind of like, he kind of made fun of like, oh, he like, and then he like, well, obviously studied it. And he was like, at the timestamps, ah, poor, you know, poor obsessed guy, which I was completely obsessed. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that was, um, yeah. So that was totally Ross and Carrie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean like, oh, and then, uh, oh, oh, so here, yeah. let me just Ross and Carrie. So I did the show. I was kind of like, that was a yeah. rough show for me. You know what yeah. happened is they said, Hey, we want you on your show. And I'm like, great. I say, so I say to everyone who's asked for a podcast, sure. I'll be on your show. And then, and then I went to listen to the episode because they talked about me meeting, seeing my talk. They did a whole episode about watching my talk at the right. Arkansas yeah. UFO conference. Wow. They were pretty harsh towards me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the, f-? like, I'm not going to do your show if you're going to be harsh towards me. Like I basically like said, okay, well, I'm not doing this unless you play nice. And then they asked me on and then so we did this whole thing and then a guy listens to the show and he basically said like, oh, or like that during the show, there was a lot of talk about like, oh, the number thing, you can't go, you can't use that. Oh, people don't just see owls and in context of this. And so a person gets a hold of me after the show has a picture of an owl out the window. He says, I'm listening to your show at the office and he, and he texts me a picture of an owl out his window and it's at 333. I was really wondering whether Ross and Carrie like staged that somehow. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and they I don't know if they yeah, did or not. That, that has to make you wonder because it's like, yeah, like they, they were, They're pushing like, I, I remember listening to it and I'm like, for, for someone who is not like they were very it, like, it seemed like the the vitriolic nature with which they were they were like talking was just like why are you so angry at mike mike is like <laughs> for one thing i had i had listened to, to other interviews with you and you you're like genuinely like one of the nicest people i've ever you know heard oh yeah well I, I, but so you know there's a there's a line i love to use so someone got got a hold of me and um, there's a friend of mine and he's listening. He's like, you know, your work drives me crazy. Like, you're not scientific. You're not being scientific. Mm. And I said, well, I care. I'm not a scientist. Right. Like, I'm not a scientist. I don't have to be scientific. I'm like, I'm not like, you know, I'm not a scientist. Like, like does, you know, the, the, like a, an investigative journalist who's looking into a, like into a, a, a political scandal, do they have to be scientific? Right. They have to follow some juris, ju- journalistic standards. The standards I'm trying to keep up with are, is there a pattern? Like, basically, I, I'm very cautious to give you a one-off story. If it is a one-off story, I'll tell you it's a one-off story. If it fits a pattern, I'm totally at peace telling you. So once you get to two, it's like, kind of, that's not much of a pattern. But once it gets to like 50, that's a pretty strong pattern. Right. So, um, so I'm, and then I'm, um, and if someone tells me something, I'm simply saying this person told me that I'm not saying I never gave it. I don't know. I don't like I'm one person. I can't give someone a lie detector test. One guy gave me a hard time because I didn't have like a Gauss meter. Oh, oh, how, how do you do your research without a Gauss meter? I'm like, what are you talking about? Do you know what my research is? I'm like, I just talk to people on the phone. I don't like, like I've, I've certainly been gone to people's homes and like stood in the yard and they've said, this is where the UFO landed or this is where the, I had the owl sighting. But 
mean, what am I supposed to do? You know, like I'm one person, like mm-hmm. my plate's full. Like, so, um, uh, this is a story that, that, so I was, this is actually ties into Saranac Lake again. Um, this would have been during the writing of the messengers, the first all book. Oh, I'd been on the phone earlier and I contacted someone and sort of said, Hey, there was a fellow named Sequoia Trueblood, who's a shaman, a Canadian shaman in a, in a tribe in Canada. And, and he's associated with a college. So I contacted the college and I said, I, I would like to talk to Sequoia Trueblood. This was actually some days before. And then I, Andrea comes home. I'm at the inn, the beautiful inn in Saranac Lake. And Andrea comes home and she gets on her phone and she texts me or she like calls me like, Mike, come out here right now. There's an owl. So I go out and there her car, she had to park in a different spot than she usually does. The one parking space was taken up by someone else at the landlord's house or something. So she's parked in a totally different spot than she usually parks. So she's facing into the trees and there's a barred owl in the trees. So I walk there. I'm tall. She's a little shorter than me. So she's so I could look right over the top of her head. I had a camera. She said, great, grab your camera. So I had her camera actually. So I'm taking pictures, click, click, click this owl. I have used this, I use these pictures and talks. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of a barn owl in a tree in the Adirondacks, right? So it's, mm. as I'm taking the pictures, she goes, uh-oh. And she then says something weird's happening. Nothing weird's happening to me. I'm taking pictures of this owl. Like click, click, click. God, I got 50 pictures of this owl. She, afterwards, she said, like, reality changed. Everything went fuzzy. The owl had a magenta halo around its body. And I connected with the owl. Like, like time stood still. And I Hmm. connected. I had a download. Like, I was right there. Like, like it was a nice sighting. So, I'll fly. Oh, you know what happened? This is, this is, this story gets this typical of these stories. So we look at her and she looks at me and says, wow, that's really great. And we look back and the owl's gone. So, oh, I wanted to see it fly away. Yeah. So I go in the house and then it's bring, bring, phone rings. Hi, this is Sequoia Trueblood. I had the conversation with the guy that I wanted to have right, right then. And I said, hey, just so you know, like I saw an owl like one minute ago. He's like, oh, that does not surprise me at all. Like so, and so he's, this has nothing to do with UFOs particularly, but it's everything to do with this mystical overlap of spirituality and, and spirituality is a rough term. I'm cautious to use that term. Listen, spirituality implies something. It's kind of a fuzzy word that doesn't really mean anything. So I would say that this heightened, this heightened urgency around these events, like whether they're owl events or UFO events. Now, um, later, this woman, Jessica, gets a hold of me. She tells me a story. She's lying in bed, and she's got a window. She looks out the window. She describes it as sort of visionary. She she's very clear that it just it just it's it's not quite part of this. Is it is she half in and out of sleep? She says she looks out the window, and there's an owl on a branch looking in at her. And then there's a laser beam that comes from the heavens and hits the owl in the head. And then out of the third eye of the owl shoots another laser beam that goes right into her third eye. And she's like, like has this total mystical experience. Mm. And I kind of said, oh, what do you think happened? So well, it felt like a download. And then I kind of took, Andrea, this is the same story. Hold it. Andrea, you write down, you get a piece of paper, you write down right now, define what you mean by download. 
And then I got a hold of Jessica. Jessica, with like right now, you do it. You text me right back. Define your definition of download. They didn't say word for word the same thing, but wow, they essentially they were saying they said it is something like I was given information that I cannot access, but I will be able to access it someday. They said the same thing. Andrea's in front of an owl that turns magenta. Jessica has a magenta laser beam shoot from an owl's forehead into her third eye. Like, oh, it's not the same, but so yeah. <laughs> so later. This gets so weird. Later, which we almost never did. Andrea and I are sitting together in the front of the fireplace. Beautiful, like, oh, you can just like the wood paneling in this yeah. living room we had. Oh, my God, it was beautiful. And so the fireplace and reading, which we almost never do. We were watching TV or we'll do something else. But so we're reading. And Andrea's reading this book by, oh, I can't remember, Talking to Aliens by Lisette Larkins. And she goes, that's weird. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is the same thing. The same thing. This is my owl story. It's almost the same thing. So Lisette Larkins in this book tells a story of she, she is, um, she's, uh, she lives in California now. I'm not sure where she was at the time when this event happened, but she was, um, in a relationship with a guy and that the relationship wasn't going very well. And, but she was, she was, there was a truck in the town she lived in or on the street, she would walk up and down the street. There was a truck. Then in the vanity license plate on the truck was moping. And she said, well, I'm that truck. That's I'm that truck because I just mope around. I'm moping. Mm -hmm. And so she is driving past the truck with her boyfriend and there's a hawk. It's not an owl, but it's a hawk on top of the truck. She says, stop the car, stop the car. And her boyfriend stands behind her and takes pictures of the hawk as she walks up to the hawk. Same thing that Andrea and I did. I stood behind her, took pictures. She said very clearly that the truck represented her. I am that truck. I am moping. And then there's a hawk on top of it. And she had a download. Same kind of thing. She said, well, I was given this mystical information and it felt like, and it was like, so here's like these three people with the same story. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk to Lisette Larkin. So I reached out to her. I found her publisher. I sent a note and it took a little while, but it came back. And so, so I, so she, we talk on the phone. She said, oh, you're like, oh, oh wait. Right. So like this, you know, I said, well, it was a hawk on the top of your car, but you know, like the research I'm doing is owls. And it's like, oh, it is. Well, the, the, when your email came in, I was in my backyard and the grandkids were there and they were splashing around in the pool and we have a flagpole at the top of the flagpole was an owl and the dog was barking at the owl. And that was when your email came in to me. Like, I want to talk to you and ask you this question. So so I'm so how many owls have you seen? Never, never saw an owl before. How many times an owl have like been on top of that flagpole? No, no birds don't land on the top of that flagpole. Like, how am I supposed to, what, what detail do I leave out of that story? Right. I mean, it's all one big collective overlapping mush of three people's stories. Yeah. And none of all of them independently are unbelievable. Yeah. Right? So, okay, a hawk on top of a car called moping and a purple magenta silhouette around an owl and then the laser beams and like, but collectively they're, they just overlap in my mind. It's all one story. So that is not a standalone story. It's like, it's this convergence. So that's what I look for in this research. When this stuff starts to converge like that, wow, I'm like, I'm pulling on those threads. What's the purpose of it? Right. To convince me of something? I'm already convinced of this, you know, so I don't need any proof. Right. So 
but but you also like like just in some of the stories you also seem to be that connecting point to other people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so oh, like, i recognize it yeah yeah so like either you have the te- you have the ability to be that go between to be people mm-hmm. which is interesting like um like you have owls for me i have and i keep finding this in the research that i do is that um i will come across a sketch looks almost the same uh every time i see it it's a sketch in a ufo account and it's usually a kind of a smallish ufo no bigger than 50 feet in diameter but sometimes you know as small as like 15 to 20 feet there's a ring of lights around it uh most of the time sometimes there isn't there's a transparent dome on top and there's two figures inside mm-hmm. but they all look the same every single time or, or pretty dang close like there's a recognizable pattern there to the point where i found like 20 of these at this point mm-hmm. so like yeah there's there's always those patterns to find you know like um even even when you don't think there are they somehow i don't know they they just they have an ability to find you while you're not maybe necessarily looking for them but like they somehow pick you out and there they are so but how does this happen right i mean so i can't answer the mechanism of how it happens all i can say is it happens people have these overlapping experiences where where these like like if you wanted to stage this in someone's Mm -hmm. life how would you do it how would you get someone to call at a certain time and how would you like like i mean does someone else yeah like i don't like something magical is taking place beyond the veil magical is a term i'm totally comfortable using because i can't explain it and and something is happening beyond the veil that's overlapping influencing with our lives yeah um and and i you know i will i will always say that there is something that has its hand in the making of this podcast because when i go to research something oftentimes i'll just be led to sources out of nowhere um uh there was i want to say this is like almost two years ago but i was it's a saturday morning i was sitting at home and i was about to pick up a book to read it and i out of the corner of my eye i see a hand didn't see it wasn't attached to anything it's just a disembodied hand and it just started wagging its figure like no put that down you don't need to read that right now so I put it down and ended up going down a different path for a different episode. But mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but they they lead you somewhere, you know. Um, and it's often very orchestrated to one person's particular. I've had stuff where, um, like, I sleep out a lot, so I have a lot of things that are tied into sleeping outside under the stars, and then. Um, I have a lot of things with maps, which I, I make maps and I was so like, it feels like they are, they are setting me up with clues that I will make a map and then find some really interesting things that happen on that map. Mm. So that seems to play out. Yeah. So, and that, that I've talked to other people too, who have had that same thing where like details that are uniquely positioned for them to solve, right? So they, they have to, I mean, anyone who has this experience if they're thoughtful and curious, they're gonna they're gonna be a detective, looking into their own story, mm. and oftentimes the, the clues that are given to them seem uniquely positioned exactly for them. Yeah, 
yeah absolutely and i definitely feel like i'm part of that you know uh just in the the i i don't really know how it all lead i don't I, i can't even think in in my mind how it all like the phenomenon led me to people that were doing this and then to ultimately start doing this myself and so far it has also kind of like led the way in the research and and like even talking to people and having get certain guests on like um they always seem to like line up so like yeah there there is something if you're you know open to it it just kind of leads you leads you on this path put me mm-hmm. on a path puts like puts a lot of people on paths and like uh the one thing that has always you know frustrated me about reading those old accounts and like flying saucer review and stuff is like you have the story but you don't have the other stuff which is how this affected people and where unless you're them. ryan sprague yes exactly but like or me so um the tic tac thing mm-hmm. you know like i'm so bored with that like i want to have someone ask that pilot that david fravor i could ask him like have you had any psychic abilities? Has your psychic right. abilities changed? What was what happened? What was going on in your life leading up to the event? What changed after? I mean, obviously he's like been on sixty minutes and things like that, so you can say that changed. But um, right. you know, and maybe that's not a good example. But um, I've talked to people who are very, let's say, very, very. So Richard Dolan is very comfortable with one foot in the really strange and one foot in the in the pragmatic, grounded research that yes. defines. Yeah sort of the nuts and bolts aspect, but he's also very comfortable like addressing the really weird stuff. Right. So, and there's some people who like, the, have you ever been to a UFO conference? No, I the, I need to get to one at some point. So anyway, but, that's, you know, the interesting, yeah. the nice thing about a UFO conference, you can go to a UFO conference and you can turn to the person next to you in line to get coffee and you say, so what brings you here? And mm. they have perfect, they, the, the, given the setting, they can say, I'm here because I saw a UFO. And then you can, have a conversation so it's really interesting so um but there are some very very dry researchers i will not name names in this i've you know you have a conversation with these people and get a glass of wine and i'm at the bar or whatever and then i'm like so what about you know any weird stuff like what, what about the weird stuff like you never report the weird stuff you're on you're doing this reporting is this very dry above board stuff and they're like oh wow boy have i heard some weird stories i'm like well how come you're not sharing right. those Right. And they're like, well, I want to be taken seriously. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what the hell does that leave me? Like, I'm sharing yeah. the weird stories stuff. And like, you know, like I get like, you know, no one, from, I'm not on 60 minutes kind of things. Um, you know, and, and so I'm, 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 I don't want to sound, I'm not bitter at all. Cause that's something, but I'm basically saying that there's like, there's a, and there, and I've got stories that are too weird to tell. Oftentimes those involve other people and I don't have their permission to tell it. So, but, um, uh, that would be a better way to say it. Yeah. So I can't, there's some stories I, ch- I choose. I am, I am, I simply cannot share because I don't have permission, but, um, the weird aspect of it. Wow. People shy away from that. Yes. Well, people shy away from that. And then, um, Bud Hopkins who died in 2011. Right. Uh, he, and I had a conversation. This is videotaped. There's some videotape of this somewhere. Um, and I said, what about synchronicities and all the weird stuff, like synchronicities and things? And he kind of, and he did this, he made a hand gesture, which is important. We're good. We're on video. And he said, he said, you know, 
when you look into the stuff, the little, the little things just go everywhere. And he made like this kind of splash thing. The stuff just goes everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. psh, like something splashes, little droplets are going everywhere. And he says, it's my job as a researcher to, right. to confine this into something that, that people can take in. And I thought to myself, even then, this was going back a decade ago, or well, more than a decade ago. I remember like sitting there thinking like, I'm, I'm, I want those little dots, like, yeah, I want to follow exactly. that one dot out there. And what's going on with that dot that, that you're not putting into the, you know, what's, what ingredients are you leaving out of the cake, basically? Yeah, exactly. What doesn't fit into the box? And like how many, because I always wonder how many accounts came his way that didn't fit into his box that he wasn't really interested oh, oh, in. Oh, you have a private conversation with him. Yeah. He knew all about all those little dots. Yeah. He knew all about them. He knew all about the synchronicities. He was, he was really funny. He would say, he said, oh, so, so here, oh, this is a strift that I'm, he told me and I've heard him tell it. So he said, what about the synchronicities in these stories? So to be fair, I was shaken up. I arrived mm-hmm. at Bud Hopkins' door, mm-hmm. like shattered. Like I, this was a rough chapter of my life. 2000, so been 2008, mm-hmm. and we knocked on his door. I was in a, I was shaky. I was not, I was not at peace and you could see it on me. My friends knew, like my friends, I lost friends just cause I was so like frazzled and, and, and I gained up new ones. But, um, so I said, sitting in conversation, not hypnotized or anything like that. So I was sitting in conversation. I'm like, bud, um, what about the, what about the weird stuff, the synchronicities and stuff? And he was really good because he was just soothing me. Like mm-hmm. people say, oh, Bud Hopkins, he's like, he used hypnosis. He was like, a, he's a bad guy in this field because he published these books with hypnosis. He was so dedicated to, to the emotional needs of the individual. He wasn't a therapist, but he, he would have been a beautiful therapist. He, was, he would basically said, Mike, you don't worry too much about those synchronicities. Like, don't you get lost in those synchronicities, which I did get lost in those synchronicities, but don't you, and he, then he went and said, oh, here's a story. I, he pointed out the window, we were on 16th street where his office was, or his home was, and he was pointing out like right over there across the street was a liquor store. And I used to go there and just, and I knew the guy across the street, this funny old guy that, that, you know, that worked there. And, George Obarski. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know the story. I do. It's one of my favorite okay. stories. Absolutely. Okay, have you shared it on the show ever? Um, we could share it again. It's been a while okay, since okay. Uh, the so, so get, came out. Correct me if I get this wrong. So he says, oh, actually, you know, like, uh, funny, funny synchronicity. Or well, if you want to treat it like one. Oh, I'm all um, for funny synchronicities. Um, the uh, uh, I write a web comic with Todd Purse. It's called Welcome UFO People, mm-hmm. and we just the latest comic is about this case. <laughs> oh, how interesting! Yes. Yeah. So, so. Then the, I'll try to sum this up quickly. So he, the guy says, ah, you know, what's going on with the world? You know, like I had this crazy experience of seeing, you know, flying saucer. And I saw it over there and in, in just across the river, across the Hudson in New Jersey. And was it in, yep. in Newark? No. No, it was in North Bergen, New Jersey. Okay. So, he, so he, so Bud's like, well, that's interesting. I'll go and investigate this. Bud wrote an article for the Village Voice eventually on this case. Yep. And so he goes there and he talks to the to like he said well there's the building this is where it happened he said well there's usually a a, um a uh 
like a doorman in a building like that. So he found the doorman that was working that night and had the conversation with him. I think it was like a window shattered when he was talking to the doorman. Yes. When, yeah, so the um, window like totally exploded, like a gunshot shattered the window is basically what it seemed like. Yeah. There was no gun. Yeah, but but you're, just, I think you're glossing over the, 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 the important part here is that he, he saw 10 beings get out of this UFO and start digging soil samples. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So the, yeah. yeah. So he saw the beings come out of the UFO and dig the soil samples. And that's what George said is also including the, the doorman saw it too. Uh, the doorman didn't see the aliens. He did see a light in the park. Okay. Um, and he said it was like about 10 feet off the ground. And then uh, when it left, it sh- it shattered the front door. Yeah, And it also, um, they found that um, there was like a tree that had been like almost had a split in it and it hadn't have had that before. And the interesting, the other interesting thing was, is that the, uh, the, the maintenance men that like uh, uh, worked in the park said that it wasn't long after that, that they did end up filling in about 10 holes in that area with, with like, uh, with soil. So like there was, there's a lot of interesting kind of physical evidence in that case, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, corroborated physical evidence and a bunch of other stuff, but yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. Awesome. Cause I, I'm totally lost in this one other detail, but Mm -hmm. he's talking to the doorman who had saw the, who was the witness. Yes. And he's like, you look familiar. And the doorman says, you look familiar. And he said, oh, I delivered a painting to this building. And you took me up the freight elevator because we could only fit in this one elevator. So we had to carry it up to apartment, but you had to take me in the elevator. So, so, so Bud said, it's my first case I ever worked on. Yes. Yeah. Two witnesses. And I knew both of them. Mm-hmm. It's in New York City. Two witnesses. He knew both of them. Yep. So there's a synchronicity. Like, oh, that's a powerful yeah. one. And... And so he was basically saying, don't you worry about those synchronicities. And he tells me like a profound UFO synchronicity story. Right. Right. Um, I, and also to, um, with, with the way that Bud th- did things, he also had a specific narrative that he presented when it came to abduction cases. Um, we all do. I do too. We well, all do. well exactly. But I, yeah. I think his influence has had a greater effect on what that, particular phenomenon looks like than anybody at this point aside from maybe whitley streber i would say his his influence has been that great oh i agree i agree and he was like he was um sorry to interrupt but just um you know one of the things that um i did uh and researched in the, the while doing this podcast is what did abductions look like before bud hawkins and what did they look like after and what you find is before Bud Hawkins, they were they were very different. The after you get to Bud Hopkins and Whitley Streber, your abductors kind of have the same they look largely the same. There are these small gray figures. Before that, they're very different. Sure. There were the robots yeah. and giant tall things yes. and people yes. with like looked like you know italians and with tight fitting knit caps and things like that yeah so right. and those still yeah. show up in the in the lore for sure for sure but yeah so i so yeah so so who's what's influence who's influence what is pop culture let's say pop culture is like the media culture seeding the story and the story then reflects back at it yeah this is like the right. echo chamber of this mystery is very complex to try to parse when out you, when you think about it 
there's one man that actually had probably the greatest influence on what you know grays look like and it's not it's the artist ted seth jacobs Mm -hmm. the guy that did the cover for communion because when you do read communion they don't all look like that that's just what the main uh being that whitley interacts with looks like the other beings there's short blue troll like looking ones that he says there's Mm -hmm. other ones that are kind of like those gray type beings but they have like instead of almond shaped eyes they just have like black holes and there's a black mouth you know that's round um but ultimately that becomes you know the defining image to the point where your aliens these days um are streamlined at least the ones that you know are are brought up in popular culture Mm -hmm. so you got your grays you've got your tall human looking uh beings with long blonde hair you've got your reptilian types you have your um mantis type beings Mm -hmm. and like they're just you know kind of a couple of other ones but yeah before that it was very weird you know like uh you read the um lee parish abduction a guy a a young kid in kentucky a 19 year old kid in kentucky in 1977 he gets abducted and the story that comes forward is he was abducted by three machines one was shaped Mm -hmm. like a big black wall one was shaped by looked like an oversized like old school kind of like cash register and the other there was one that was vaguely shaped kind of like a coke machine in a way um like a coke cooler did experiments on them or they did something to them and they sent them Mm -hmm. back um so that's that's always been interesting to me and while i'm sure those kind of accounts are still there like uh the the influence of pop culture and the the research of the 80s has always been i think pretty prominent in how we view view things now or how how things are presented you know uh in popular culture and stuff now mm-hmm. yeah so um bud would reference you know i, I so people would say like um like, oh, and I saw the cover of Communion. I had this powerful, I've talked to a lot of people who said mm-hmm. that, you know, like, so that book that yeah. came out in 1987. And they said, when I saw that, it was everywhere. It was in every bookstore. It was in the rack at the grocery store. It was everywhere. And so when people saw the cover of that book, they were like, oh, they had this powerful experience. Now, my experience was, because I would have been in that age, I would have been in my mid-20s, late 20s. And I had the experience of like, this is a weird thing. Like, I had yeah. no knowledge of this chapter of my life. I was completely oblivious to any of this. And my thought was, well, that's not quite right. Yeah. The cover of communion. So Bud said he's, he gets people said, oh, that, that picture on the cover of communion. And then they, then privately they'll tell Bud, this doesn't get into the headlines or like not, you know, this is, they'll say, well, it wasn't quite right. And then they'll kind of say, well, this is like the head would be a little like this and the eyes were a little more like this. And like that little image on the, on the cover of communion has a very, it's, uh, it's highly stylized, but it has a human nose in a human mouth with like a, just a slight smile. But that I think was like a, you know, and to be fair, but, or uh, Whitley, Whitley said this was not the gray aliens. This would have been the tall female aliens that was with the gray aliens. So, and, um, it had the little, I have a mustache right now, so you can't see it, but that little funny gap that you have just under your nose, that little, right. That showed up in the image of the alien, which I've never seen in any. Yes. Right. Redrawing. So that would have been the artist just, doing what an artist does he's drawn many portraits before so and I, and what's interesting about that artist is that he did another image before this 
that was in Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, associated with, I think it's the Steve Kilburn case. I can't remember exactly, but there's an image. There's a group of them. And it's kind of it's your gray archetype. They have like what you would think of as the features of a gray. They've got those like really pronounced eyes, um, short stature and everything like that. So it's it's interesting to think that. It's not totally one one like like these researchers writing these books, but it's one literally one guy's cover image for a book that has influenced so much of this, mm-hmm. you know. Like and then, the, the, and I'm a I'm a professional illustrator or was for a long time, so I know yeah. what just what it means to like draw something. You're sitting alone in the room. Someone says, "Hey, here's what I want you to draw." You go away and sit alone in a room, and you're kind of like you're going to do what you're going to do, and it's not going to match what he wanted, you know. So I can see that that you know, like it's an interpretation by an artist or an illustrator trying to match someone's description. That you know, there's going to be you. The, so yes, that image on the cover of Communion. The broad strokes clearly match. Yes, yeah. what people remember. The fine details are a little, you know, that was just something that the left to his own devices, the the uh, the painter would have done. So I've got another interesting kind of synchronicity for you. Um, when we were doing this latest issue of Welcome UFO People. Um, when you go and you look for the original, um, uh, articles written about this case, uh, it was, it, it was Bud Hopkins, Bud Hopkins investigated it. Uh, he investigated it with Ted Blocher and another, um, investigator, a uh, couple of veterans. And, um, the only images that you can ever find associated with this case is George Obarski standing kind of in this field not far from the apartment building which is called the stonehenge mm-hmm. um it's a big round apartment building it's still there um but these beings have never de- been depicted except in one history channel um brief documentary about the case um and i think it it largely had to do with um ufo's in like new jersey or something like that at least that was the gist that i got from it and I never gave it to Todd. I just gave him a slight description and basically said, you know, you know, your interpretation, do do what you think that they would look like. And he sends it to me. And they look exactly how they were. They look exactly like how they were depicted in this History Channel documentary. That's so where is it? Is it psychic ability? I mean, so I think that I'm totally open to psychic the psychic ability of the, especially in a creative process, right? People can tap into these kind of things. And so, so yeah, I, I sent him the video and he was kind of blown away by that, but like we are, we have that kind of connection. We will, um, oftentimes we'll, when we're going back and forth on this stuff, we'll, um, we'll be like, Oh, I was just about to text you about that or, or something mm-hmm. like that. But like when you get, that uh, that kind of connection. That's interesting to see the the, the kind of things that come out of that. You know? mm-hmm. um, but have you read um, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut? Yep. So in that story, and I footnoted it in the, one of the books, but there's a scene where Billy Pilgrim, who is unstuck in time, and the book is written in kind of this jumps all over the place, and it's yep. kind of bold science fiction book for its time. Um, 
that seems kind of standard issue in a lot of books these days where like the plot jumps around like that but mm -hmm. uh billy pilgrim the protagonist in the story was taken by a flying saucer to trafalmador and 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 then is continually reliving his life over and over again in all these little puzzle pieces so um yeah. but he there's a scene where he he walks out he knows he's going to be abducted because he's lived it over and over and over again so he walks out into the backyard and and he says there was an owl hooting in the different in the distance and then a flying saucer hovered above and i knew i was going to be abducted i'm doing that i'm paraphrasing but that's pretty close and right. then and then it was like oh i just like wow that's remarkable right so there's owls and ufos wow couldn't be any clearer an owl hooted and there's a flying saucer here to abduct me boom owls ufo contact two sentences side by side this is the core of my research that book is fiction Mm -hmm. right? Willie Strieber's book is nonfiction. That's the mm -hmm. second time. Like I really scrubbed the literature trying to find something in there. And there's re there's some references to owls in books, but fleeting, like a sentence where, where Whitley really said it, but except for the fiction book. So Whitley's book came out in 87. Slaughterhouse-Five came, came out, I think, in 68. Yeah, it's about on there. Yep. So, and then, so, so we're talking almost 20 years earlier. And, and then, uh, but I, so you, if I actually, a friend of mine found like a reference, this was an online thing. It was kind of a, you know, you know cliff notes are the cliff notes you'd get for a, yep. for a, to study something. Those are online now and there's like cliff note type things. So there's a cliff note type set of an exploration or a set of, like a literary analysis of slaughterhouse five and owls show up all over that story where there was like an owl on a, but they always show up in the context of the UFO basically before he's taken away. So it's not just in that one point, which I just thought it was, that's the most literal. Some of it is like, Oh, the person had an owl like glasses. And another one, it was like, Oh, there was an owl image on a, on a coffin or on a box or something like that, but it's jumping around. And the author of the essay or the cliff notes or cliff like notes, um, basically said plainly, this doesn't have anything to do with me or my research. He said, yes, you know, the author Vonnegut was, was clearly using the owl imagery and equating it to the UFO contact, the flying saucer contact of the, for the Trelfin, Trelfin, the people from yeah. yeah i was gonna say trafalmadorians yeah yeah so so that yeah this is this is like where did that come from like now here's what i will say unequivocally you you put 100 books up important books from the 20th century 50 books in the 20th century communion what least was communion is going to be in that list and slaughterhouse five is going to be in that list it's like i mean maybe even smaller depending who would like was picking the books but you, that, you know what's that's interesting, interesting about that is um i think it was 2019 2018 it was npr they did a um i don't know if it was a list of the 100 best horror novels or something like that uh but they broke the rules and put communion on it oh because it's a true story yeah it says it right on the cover a true story yeah, yeah. it right. says right on every page 
or yeah. every open page with a left-facing page and right-facing page. Every yeah. other page of the book says a true story. Right. And like, you know, to put it into that context, you know, with all of these other fiction books, it's, it's, that's really interesting because like, I, I don't think, you know, before I had read communion that I had ever heard of a mention of owls being involved in did you read UFOs. did you read slaughterhouse five before communion no i didn't okay i did i did i didn't catch it at all until like i yeah. was like someone else pointed it out to me and then i got all i got sucked on the rabbit hole of that yeah so so yeah where like where does the so that's the creative process right was he was he intuiting like something in was kurt vonnegut if i can i don't think so but you could speculate was kurt vonnegut an abductee and was he t an unknowing abductee right. just like not knowing maybe so but i think the creative process can pull these things out of the ether in ways that 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 a creative type might understand and the yeah. pragmatic journalist or the pragmatic mufon investigator I'm using that kind of derogatory, you know, in a derogatory way. I don't mean to, but but the dry investigator would not go down that avenue of speculation. That the, that a creative process could tap into future events or could tap into the zeitgeist of 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 something that had not occurred yet or had not made its appearance in popular culture yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, like when you read a, a lot of the you know UFO books going you know back into the decades. There aren't a lot of them that deal with that kind of subject. They're very straightforward in, mm -hmm. in the way that they present like stories like this and like, well, I mean, uh, uh, passport to the cosmos came out in the late sixties by Jacques Vallée. That's no, passport to Magonia. Yeah. 60. Oh, passport to the, yeah. Passport yeah. to the cosmos came out. That was, that's uh that's John, John Mack. Mack. Excuse me. I'm yep. blending my passport to books. I think he did. He said passport to the cosmos as a yes. nod to passport to Magonia. Magonia. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, even even then, you had like him and Keel, and oh, well, Keel's all over it. Yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. people doing this esoteric work out there. They're 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 ignored in many ways yes. by the by the population. Yeah. So they're like I th and I think and Bud was certainly aware of it. I talked to Dave Jacobs. He's certainly aware of it. The weird stuff. They 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 shy away from it in there. How they discuss it. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. And and like someone like um, James Fox is very open about the fact that he's not making the movie The Phenomenon for people who are immersed in the UFO subject already. But this is also he's, a guy that is now releasing a documentary about the Virginia incident. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Like, like in a, in a situation like that, is it about the fact that this is like your Roswell kind of scenario, um, you know, versus it, I don't it, like, where's the dividing line of being taken seriously at that point? Because I remember you being on Todd's podcast and talking about that and having that conversation with James Fox at a, I think it was like at a UFO conference or something mm -hmm. like that, where you asked him, you know, are you going to include stuff about abductions? And he said, no, we wanted to be taken seriously. And I kind of made the sad face. I was like, well, right. well, what about me? Like so. And now to be fair, I that was at in in uh like they have a final dinner, like where you wear a suit and tie at this final dinner at the UFO conference that they have every year, or they used to have every year in Arizona. And then 
And then I went home to Idaho. I got home and the phone rang. It was James Fox. He said, hey, let's talk about this. Like, like mm. what do I do? How, who, who would I talk to? I said, oh, you could talk about this. He asked for some people. And, and, and then he never actually, well, and then, so that meant a lot to me. So yeah. he's, he was not, he was, it was a very conscious decision. He wasn't doing it to be a meanie or anything like that, but he was a very conscious decision. He, he states it very clearly. His, his role is not to, is to, to open the door. To, yeah. to, oh, the door is open a tiny crack. He wants to push that door open farther and to the general public and get the, this, the awareness out there. And he, he feels, which is probably true that he would lose the general public if Someone came on and told a nutty story about, you know, owls and psychic abilities and Reiki healing and that kind of thing. Right. And yeah. Like, yeah. You know, magenta laser beams coming out of the third eye of an owl and giving someone a psychic download. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. There's always kind of a jumping off point for people that are, you know, in what they're presenting and what they're willing to present and, and, and yeah. stuff like and that. I do and I do it too, to a degree. But then, yeah. as I said before, it's, it involves other people and such. So. Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, when you when you look at 2017, I call it the Great Reset because in many ways the view of UFOs changed for a lot of people. Like a lot of people came into UFOs after that New York Times article. And the image that was presented was a very kind of sterile version of what, you know, the UFO phenomenon can be. And the fact that my podcast started around the same time kind of makes me feel like I'm meant to remind people how weird this stuff can get. Yeah, and that there yeah, are too. the yeah. and that there are those people out there that are here to remind others of how weird this stuff can get. So while the popular image of UFOs is largely confined to the military right now um you know there are those resources for those that if they really want to dig into this stuff and um find how weird it gets it's out there you know there your, are people. your podcast yeah my books john keel's books are 50 years old they're 60 years old they're they're all out there yeah so yeah and they're still continuing to be popular i keep tabs on like what books are selling and i just kind of scroll through and john keel's books are right there in the top 50 all the time that's remarkable given how long ago that was so yeah um and i think that's also the power of the mothman and the mothman's ability to sell books <laughs> yeah well there's other books too i mean the you yeah, know, operation yeah. trojan horse is selling pretty well yes. and so yeah yeah oh here's this is what i was gonna say so yeah. like you start so i had a powerful thing i call my contact experience my my um, confirmation experience which involved like oh it's this incredibly complicated story with like sleeping out under the stars in Utah and a line in a map and multiple events. And, and then what, what was my confirmation experience was, was a, involved with a psychic image of a map. It's, it's like, it's by all rights should be unbelievable. Like it should be beyond belief. Mm. So from my direct experience, it happened. And at the end of that, like it was all confirmed. And that happened on March 10th, 2013. And then there was a couple of days where I was kind of all frazzled, like what just happened? And I put all the piece, puzzle pieces together and I saw this line in a map where these three disparate events over four years, boom, 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 on, like lined up on a map. And it was like, whoosh, like, oop, all my doubts are over. My doubts have ended. Yeah. The next day I started the first book, The Messengers. So, so within 
what seems to be a UFO contact event in Southern Utah. Within 48 hours, I started writing the messengers. Hmm. And I didn't put that together until years later. Like, well, that's, that's interesting to me. And it felt like, so, you know, a, you know, what was cause and effect? Yeah, exactly. The, the implication feels like I was told to write that book. That doesn't make it true, but that's how it feels. Yeah. Um, and hearing you, like, I, I, you know, I've heard you tell that story on other podcasts and, and stuff. And that's made me look at my own life and, and at that 2018 experience, that last experience and it being like, okay, kid, you're on the right path. Good job. Keep up on it. You know, like that's, that's the way that I view it because like, I don't need them anymore, I guess, or. Well, who knows? I mean, tomorrow's yeah. another day, but at the same time, it's kind of like the, the, cause I get that all the time where someone has a powerful UFO experience and they're like, I want another one. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like if you, if you're like in a detective novel and you write the novel and you're the good yeah. novelist and like the, the, you know, the, the detective finds the bullet casing in the bushes. Mm-hmm. You don't need to go back later in the story and find the bush, the bullet casing again in the bushes. You only need yeah. that once. You got it. You got your clue. Yep. Like you don't need to, like what, 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 like it's nice, right? It's nice if you're a dog to get petted and say, good dog every once in a while. Right. But that's like, that's not necessary. It's nice, but it's not necessary. Like either you like either you either know or you don't. Right. So. Yeah. And you know, maybe it's nice to get the phenomenons, you know, Mm, approval i guess but uh you're 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 running a podcast and you're speaking to people like you know todd abrams and me and or abrahams and yeah those are those are the i mean that's you're i can just by that by me and him alone i kind of know oh i know where you're going with this and talking to you now i know where you're going with all this with your with your avenue of thought yeah so um before we get out of here um you've got it you've got your novel coming out uh coming out soon uh what is your novel about exactly oh i gotta have this i gotta get this down i gotta this is like some people are gonna ask me this and i need to be able to answer it so yeah um in the first page of the book i write the story is fiction the emotions are real i use a fiction story so (laughs) i gotta be able to do this over so if you Google UFOs and owls, you're going to find me, right? Mm-hmm. So every, so if you have an owl and UFO experience anywhere in the world, you type in, what happened to me? I had a UFO and owl. You're going to, you type in UFOs, owls. I'm the first thing that comes up in a Google search. So top of my website, it says, I want to hear your owl stories. I'm getting them. So I took I've many, many, many experiences, some of my own personally, some of things in my files, and I kind of wove them together. I didn't tell any story literally or exactly, but I certainly grabbed the flavor and the mood of certain stories. So if you've read my books or if you've heard me on podcast and you read this novel, you'll say, oh, this part, I remember when I see where this is coming from. So I tried to create a story tying all these little events together, and it's partially absurd, and then at the same time, it partially tries to tie it up. And I'm doing it in a fiction way where I like, I'm just making it up, right? So I'm not saying this is how reality works, but I kind of play around. So it's a fellow who is a 
little more than a little bit loosely based on me, who's a frustrated artist who has a kind of uh, crisis point in his life, and he disappears into the desert, walks and has a kind of a walkabout odyssey in the desert, and then he arrives at a small town, and then thereupon all kinds of coincidental powerful things happen and then involve like spies and psychic abilities and there's a little romance in there and stuff like that and it's a ufo book where i never use the word ufo it's a story about abduction where i never use the word abduction and uh so i tried to write something that if someone had no knowledge of the UFO experience. They could read this entire book and not even know it was about UFOs. And so it's more about the ethereal mood that that's that that surrounds these experiences. I like that. Right? That's and I tried to really write cool. it so it was fast-paced and it, it reads like a little bit of a of an X-Files episode, but um, you know, so it's 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 meant to zip along and and I try to explore there's a surface story and I try to explore some things deeper. So Awesome. Uh, so what day is that coming out? The 15th of May, Knockwood, if I do it all right. So. Uh, and where can people find it uh, when it's out? Uh, Amazon and find through my site. Yeah. So. And what is, what's your website? MikeClelland.com. Awesome. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for uh, coming on the pod and just having a good old conversation. This, was, this, this has been was a joy. Fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah.